0: Listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European live elections within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode 211. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show is my co host, Pontus Böckmann. See ya. Hello, hey, sir, hey, son, I mean, shut
1: up. <laughs> <laughs> How are you, Andras?
0: Not bad, not bad. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Um, I I just got over some kind of infection. I have no idea what what it was. Could it be COVID-19? It came with a bit of uh, diarrhea, a little bit of vomiting for like a day. You know, for once I feel very good that we're not in the same room recording. Yes, yes. (laughs) You should be. You should be happy about that. And now, tomorrow, I'm leaving for Thailand again. Not, uh, and I m- just mispronounced the name of the country where I'm going to. So it's Thailand, not Thailand. Thai is a different thing. Never mind. Uh, but the good thing about this is, in Thailand, yeah. you have quite a good chance of catching something. So Ooh. I can't wait. <laughs> oh, yeah. Don't do that. No, no I'll, I'll have to be very, very...
1: Travel safe. Careful. Yeah, you know, wear a condom at every possible <laughs> occasion.
0: Yeah, on my head, right?
1: Yeah, on your <laughs> head. Yes, that's right. Uh, tra- talking talking about
0: traveling. Mm. How was your skiing trip?
1: It was very good. It was very okay. good. I was in Chamonix. I had to. Well, I got the opportunity, I should say, to practice my Google French. You were talking French to them? I can say baguette in a very, very convincing uh, tone. So I think (laughs) when I use my very, very limited vocabulary, I can be rather convincing. And then they respond to me like I was a native and I'm totally lost. So uh, it was interesting, (laughs) (laughs) but it was good. Food was good. It was very expensive, but it was good. The slopes were nice, very good uh, we had snow, but not so much as they are used to. The lady who managed our the place that we've stayed she said, "C'est pas normal ça, when we talked <laughs> about the temperatures it it was It was much too warm for the season, but not too warm for us to have a very Oops. good skiing
0: vacation so so much so much for uh, global warming not happening right. Yeah, well, you can't just... But I just committed a very uh, silly uh, fallacy. So, it's yes. uh, yeah, I cherry-picked here. You're right. But... Our confirmation bias is another thing that I can invoke. Yeah, But yeah. Uh, still, mm-hmm. I think glaciers and uh, skiing slopes, those are the ones that are good indicators of a global phenomenon happening. Uh, one of the places where I usually go uh, in uh, Canada, mm-hmm. in the Rocky Mountains, I've been going there for 10 years, more than 10 years. And I can spot on my photos, Hmm. I can spot the difference. Yeah. It's Uh, terrible.
1: You know, one day is a weather, but 10 years is a
0: trend. So, yeah. Yeah. And the old lady, your your host, (laughs) (laughs) must have had a lot of experience. (laughs) Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. So I'm I'm glad you had um, a good time. Yeah, I did you know what would uh, make this a good time and that
1: would be if we had Jelena with us but unfortunately she couldn't join us today either so it's a shame it's a shame I know she had to travel something and and there's also the time
0: difference and stuff but I'm sure she will be back soon yeah yeah we definitely hope so but we do appreciate that it's it's, it's difficult to organize our recordings it it Um, is even if we are the two of us are on the same continent. Mm-hmm. With Yelena, we have a 9-hour time difference between us. And yeah. when I start traveling <laughs> across the globe, yeah, then crazy. it becomes absolutely chaotic. So, uh, and, uh unfortunately Yelena said said she couldn't make it this time. Mm-hmm. But we have um a full episode prepared and mm-hmm. a couple of things to talk about. There are things coming up. Yes, I I'd I'd like to mention one thing if I may. Yeah. Uh, that is that
1: uh, Sense About Science has announced that the nominations for the John Maddox Prize 2020 will be open from 9th of March until 11th of May. So the nomination form will be available during that time at Sense About Science's website. And this, the John Maddox Prize is a prize of uh, £3,000. And it will be decided on by an independent judging panel based on the nominations they get. And the prize is directed to, quote, researchers who have shown great courage and integrity in standing up for science and scientific reasoning against fierce opposition and hostility, end quote. So that's good things. So if you know such a person, please feel free to go to their website and fill in the nomination form, Mm -hmm. not until the 9th of March, of course, when it is open. And for people who don't know, the prize is, of course, in memory of the late, great John Maddox, who was a passionate and tireless champion and defender of science, engaging in
0: difficult debates and inspiring others to do the same. And there have been very illustrious uh, nominees and awardees mm-hmm. in the last couple of years, including Edsard Ernst, including... I'm just listing people whom we interviewed. Uh, <laughs> Brit Hermes... Those are the two people that that I can recall we interviewed uh, from from the former awardees. But who knows? Who else can come up there? But it's not a requirement. You don't have to
1: be interviewed (laughs) by us to win the prize. So feel free to nominate anyone who fits into the, the category.
0: But if you get the prize and you happen to be European or have... A european connection then we might uh, request to interview you I, th- I think that's an obligation isn't that
1: part of the rules that if you get the price you have to come on the
0: esp yes yeah mm-hmm. all right okay i don't know what to do with a uh, greater thunberg though i feel like we should interview her as well mm. but i think she might be very hard to get a hold of She's really busy and that is being turned up a notch even Mm -hmm. because according to the BBC, she will take part in a BBC program which uh, will follow her and Mm -hmm. her journey around the world trying to speak up against climate change and a call for action about climate change. So uh, the funny thing is that they did say that a series is being made by BBC Studios Science Unit, but... Where and when we might be able to see it is not yet revealed. So Ooh. they have no idea yet. Big teaser, big Where teaser. they're going yeah. to be running it. So mm. we just we just need to be sure that when it's ready, we know about it. So it's interesting. But what's more interesting is there is a very active followership of her. And there is a movement that is called Teach the Future. It's in the UK. And uh, there is uh, Joe Brindle. Who's 17 and he's uh, one of the founding members. And he uh, speaks up frequently in representation of this new movement. And why it's important to teach the future, basically, they call for an overhaul of the whole education curriculum when it comes to si- uh, climate science in the UK. Mm-hmm. What they call for is a, a complete review of the whole formal education system <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, in preparation for the future and the challenges that climate change poses teacher training is what they name as one of the greater aims as well so that they want teacher training to include climate science education so that teachers are ready to discuss mm. those issues as well. Because it's one thing to include it in the national curriculum, but if teachers are not ready to discuss them and yeah. not re- ready to prepare the children to the challenges, then it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't matter. No, that's right. But they, they uh, even call for an Climate Emergency Education Act, National Climate Emergency Youth Voice Grant Fund, which is pretty good. I mean, if the government could support... Children. I mean, it's not. It's not very likely that it it's to happen in the future because why would the government support, and especially the current government of the UK, <laughs> why would it support a movement that criticizes their lack of action <laughs> <laughs> yeah. on a daily basis? So it's not very realistic. But I still like that they have a call for that and uh, youth climate endowment fund as well. I feel like this is not something that the government should do it's probably better to come from a public or a private fund. And another interesting thing is, and I'll quote this uh, word by word, it's number six of the call, all new state-funded educational buildings should be net zero from 2022. Mm. All existing state-funded educational buildings net zero by 2030. Mm. So it is a realistic call. I think it is a good idea that focuses on something that can actually be solved yeah they even published um i couldn't find what the source of this information is but it looks like survey data they say that four percent of students feel that they know a lot about climate change only four percent 68 percent want to learn more about it and the environment oh, that's in general that's good that they want to yeah but 75 percent of teachers according to these numbers don't feel like they have had adequate training to educate students about all that so i think the challenges are great i think this is a great movement i think it needs support and it's it's like a very good way that they put up a a very good looking very informative website i think it's a good initiative yeah good Good luck guys (laughs) (laughs) good luck to us all to us all yeah (laughs) indeed yeah but i think it's time for us to move on to the segmented parts of this uh, show. So, why don't we move on to the regular This Week in Skepticism? Okay, to talk about something that happened this week with uh, relevance to skepticism, I'd like to invoke the birthday of British mentalist, illusionist, book author, and dare I say, skeptic, Darren Brown. Ooh. I think his name is familiar to a lot of us. He was born on the 27th of February, 1971, in Croydon, Greater London. And uh, he has been an entertainer for almost 30 years. He started as a late teenager. He's probably best known for his television appearances as a mentalist, including several television series and specials, some of which included some debunking. Of paranormal claims even. Mm. So Brown has uh, mostly been outspoken about his uh, methods lacking any kind of supernatural characteristics whatsoever. In his show Darren Brown investigates, he even tried to make sense of claims regarding x-ray vision and talking to the dead. A year later In Darren Brown The Experiments, he went even further into demonstrating how easy it is to manipulate the human mind. He also does seances. How do you say seance? It's a French word as well. You know you you're the expert here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I've been there for a week. Oh seance is fine, I think. Seance. He not only applies but occasionally even reveals a couple of uh techniques like cold reading and uh, hot reading and 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 the like he was even featured in the two-part documentary the enemies of reason hosted by professor richard dawkins do you remember that one i don't think it was shown here in sweden i don't i haven't seen it. no No. okay it's a very good series i first saw it in english i think it was channel four and then it was run on one of the hungarian television channels with hungarian narration he was uh, Išvan vago we've talked about him on this show he used to be a talk show host and a game show host and uh, he's a very well-educated man speaking of several different languages as well and he was at one point one of the most famous members of our skeptic society uh-huh. Uh-huh. And his voice is well known over, All over the country So it was he was a good choice to do that But in this show Richard Dawkins' uh, his show uh, Darren Brown elaborated on cold reading And hot reading as a very commonly used Method by so called Psychics who claim to be able to connect With the dead It also needs to be mentioned, though, that Darren Brown is often criticized by skeptics and believers in the supernatural alike. But I guess this is just something that comes with the job. Mm. Skeptics will always be critical towards anyone deceiving people, and those making a living out of deceit will be protective of their jobs, obviously. Hmm. But he identifies as an atheist and skeptic, at least as a skeptic of supernatural claims, but also holds that, quote... Disbelief can narrow into a rigid and negative approach, which can fail to get its message across. It can also disregard our vital search for meaning, which repeatedly trumps our need for truth. Mm. Yeah, but there's some truth in that, right? Yes, I I believe there is. So we should take that into consideration and try to be more gentle in our approaches. But one thing is for sure. All of us can learn a lot by observing mentalist performances and analysing them. Or even listening to the one who performs explain all that is happening. And Darren Brown often does just that. And since the day this episode comes out is his birthday, we wish him a good one and many happy returns of this day. Yeah. May the blind forces of selection favour him and his genes for
1: long. <laughs> happy birthday. <laughs>
0: yep. Happy birthday to you. Welcome to the Song and Dance Show. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. Darren Brown, everyone, and I think it is time for us to move on to that segment when Pontus pokes the Pope.
1: All right, let's do that. So the timing of our show was terrible when Francis finally released his say on celibacy. It was just a day before the release of our episode 209. So that was already recorded and in the bag. So it's too late to get it in there. And episode 210 was our interview episode with John Cook. So there was no uh, yeah. poking the Pope that week either. Oh, and you did do
0: a bit of a teaser about this. I did do a this. bit of a teaser. Ah, okay. yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I remember that. So here it comes.
1: <laughs> two weeks later... <laughs> So, but I want to back up a little bit because I can't assume that everybody has been paying attention or even heard all of our back episodes. So let's go back to October last year when there was a big synod or a bishops meeting in Rome to discuss the Amazon region. This was initiated by Pope Francis, but not with his direct participation. The overwhelming issue to discuss was how to make sure that the Catholic Church manages to be relevant in the large rainforest area of the Amazon. We should remember that uh, Francis has moved the focus of the Church to be more missionary than his predecessors. He wants to spread the holy faith all over the world, apparently also into the jungles of the Amazon. Now outside of the church I don't feel that that has caught too much attention but we see that in the reorganization of the Holy See and the Vatican that has been done or announced by Francis and more of this is expected in a few months. But of course when discussing with the press the church doesn't talk in terms of sending missionaries into the jungle. (laughs) That's not the, the image they want to convey it's more a talk about taking care of the Catholics that are already there, but I think we should remember that they have a missionary goal
0: here. And uh, sending people to Southeast Asia, for example, it used to be like a punishment. <laughs> that's
1: true, that's true. For
0: some and others, they were just crazy enough to, to want to be there.
1: Yes, yes. <laughs> a special fanatical monks yeah, and priests yeah, yeah. did that. For, there were a couple willingly. of those, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. One of the issues with spreading Catholicism in the Amazon apart from the remoteness is that people do not tend to be celibate and that's very important for for people like Francis. Well, yeah. obviously people don't do that because it's not what most people tend to do if they have a choice.
0: By design, yeah.
1: No, no, it's fine to be celibate if you want to and some people prefer that and it's fine. But it's not the expected lifestyle in most uh, or I would say any Culture, So anywhere outside of the Catholic church, people tend to marry and they, they tend to have sex. And that's uh, somehow a no-no for the church. So the issue for the church is that it's very hard or even impossible to ordain local priests, which you could expect to remain celibate because it's not part of what they want to do or the culture. So this synod in October discussed making an exception for, or, to the celibacy rules just for the amazon mind you they also discussed the possibility of uh, female deacons which of course is not permitted anywhere else either and this is a fun side note did they really think that it would be much easier to find celibate women than celibate men you know it's mm. it's typical of the church right yeah That
0: assumption, yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, they they can't imagine that women have needs or or are even similar to men in that respect. I think most of these bishops, they have been celibate all their lives. So they regard women as a different species that really don't have sex at all. (laughs) But that's beside the point. The most pressing need for priests in the Amazon doesn't seem to be preaching. Anders, do you know what is the most concerning for the Catholic Church when it comes to the lack of priests in the Amazon? I have no idea, actually. (laughs) (laughs) It is the communion, the Eucharist. You you must feed your congregation their holy crackers or you will deprive them of their
0: true Christness or, or whatever it's called. So that's the big thing. Yeah, because Christ can only be represented. Yeah, actually it's not representation. It's um, it's it's basically consumed. Rather. That it's actually actually it is the body of Christ itself. Yes. Uh but it can only be it consumed can only be the... is the word. You have to consume Christ in a very literal sense. Yes, oh. but it's in not not in any form. It can only be the what is it called? The communion. The Eucharist. Yeah, yeah. So it can only be that and nothing else. So not any kind of piece of food material <laughs> will do. Yeah. I I don't I don't understand why it isn't bread though. Yeah. It should I, be bread. Yeah. Never mind. Yeah, I don't know. Or a pork
1: maybe. I don't know. A little bit of bacon would be more um, <laughs> <laughs> realistic. Yes. Anyway, so the synod happened, and what did they talk about? Well, they talked and talked, and in the end they produced a document that said that non-celibate priests and female deacons may be an interesting idea to apply to the Amazon. But they didn't want to take that decision, so they left it up to the Pope to say the final word. And uh, what Pope, you may wonder? Because we actually do have two Popes. As we have reported earlier, the old Pope Benedict, the Pope Emeritus, who has um, promised when he resigned to be uh, hidden from the world, quote unquote. But he decided he could not stay silent on this. So he, together with a cardinal... Sarah published a glowing defense of celibacy in January, a little over a month ago, in, in form of a book called From the Depth of Our Hearts, Priesthood, Celibacy and the Crisis of the Catholic Church, quote. And the English version, by the way, will be available on the 12th of March. But that was, of course, creating a big controversy because uh, Benedict has retired and he's not supposed to butt in into those uh, <laughs> pressing affairs in the, in the Vatican anymore.
0: It doesn't really bother him, does
1: it? Well, it did bother him a little bit because he briefly tried to remove himself as co-author because it was such a hubbub around the book. But uh, in the end, he couldn't deny that he actually had been part of writing some of the chapters in that book. all right so this is a long story but we're getting there so on 12th of February the real Pope the current one Francis himself our good old buddy he finally released his awaited commentary on the Amazon Synod and what did he say did he go for it celibacy or not celibacy that is the (laughs) that is the question did he back down feeling the pressure from his predecessor The answer is he did actually nothing. He didn't take sides. He
0: did feel the pressure from the predecessor.
1: Maybe that's what happened. (laughs) But he also claimed, or it was claimed for him, I don't think he said it himself, that he had actually written this 32-page letter already in December. He just decided to keep it on the back burner for a while. But it was a big anticlimax. It was the shortest of his so-called apostolic letters that he has written so far, even though it was 32 pages. And he didn't come down on either side of the issue. He just uh, says in that letter that delivering the communion in the Amazon is difficult, and one may have to look into new ideas in the future taking care not to force western culture on the indigenous societies in the amazon which of course it's too late for
0: that isn't it yeah yeah
1: (laughs) because why would you do missionary work in the first place if you're very careful not to change the way people live isn't it one of the most invasive thing you can do is to go in and change their religion
0: but yeah, it's basically a way of
1: conquering.
0: It is um, a I, new culture, I, and I, a different culture. So it's it's like, I, th-
1: I think so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but when it comes to the big issues of celibacy or female deacons, we really don't know where Frankie stands <laughs> still. So. Um, yeah, big anti-clan mics. I I was very disappointed actually. I, wa- I was looking forward to the Pope versus Pope controversy or, or something like that, but
0: no. No, yeah, we mean we, we've are probably just uh I don't know, giving the younger Pope a bit of a talk down. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I, but he's ninety or yeah. ninety two. I can't remember Benedict this So yeah. so it wouldn't be much of a fist fight, you know. No, not a fist fight, definitely not. <laughs> but you know <laughs> This uh well-known and not only well-known but but widely praised for his uh his knowledge of Mm. the holy scripture Mm. i think as a theologian he's uh he's widely celebrated yeah but come on it's only one book isn't it yeah (laughs) (laughs) to be an expert right yeah that's right yeah okay okay
1: (laughs) but Uh, Of course, I'm not done yet, uh, because there was another synod meeting before the Amazon one. And I want to just (laughs) about a year ago or a little more than a year ago, it was about uh, the sex abuse scandals and how to uh, handle those. I want to revisit that, because in in spite of big words and a long letter from Francis, which was published in last May, it's hard to find any big improvements now, Mm -hmm. more than a year later. There is more reporting than ever of abuse. And of course, that in itself is in a way a progress because you want to bring this up to light. But what I tend to notice is that a lot of what's reported is old cases that happened a long time ago and where the abusers have now either died or become too old for anyone to care about. And I have one case to illustrate this. and It's the Canadian-born Jean Varnier, who founded the charity L'Arche. I think it means The Ark in in France in the 60s. He did that. And this charity grew to be a worldwide Catholic organization focusing on providing help for disabled people, which is, of course, a good cause. But wouldn't you know it? Not until Varnier died last year at the age of 90. Then there was an investigation started into all the allegations that had been against him. And it turns out now that Varnier sexually abused at least, at least six women all the way from the 70s and forward. And why does this come to light only now when he's gone? How about investigating people when there's still time to stop them? I think I think the the Catholic Church has has a lot to do there,
0: yeah, it's not the way the Catholic Church likes to do stuff.
1: No, no, they'll wait until it's too late and say, "Well, this was terrible, but it was a long time ago, and we don't think about it now, or we don't we don't do this
0: anymore, and of course they do. Well, it's almost like the the Buddhist way because they just leave it up to karma uh. to deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> <They say that. laughs> so for the Catholics it's the last judgment yeah yeah in the last judgments everything will be cleared yeah of course and same with karma yeah you've done bad things you have bad karma so in your next life you're gonna get a punishment you're gonna get reborn in a different state a lower status yeah Yeah. as a slug Slug, or something yeah yeah slug yeah Yeah. being stepped on yeah yeah speaking of slugs (laughs) or
1: catholic Uh scumbags (laughs) there is one more news (laughs) about uh, former Cardinal McCarrick. He was the defrocked uh, cardinal uh, after years of sex abuse and he was the only cardinal that has been uh, defrocked by a pope due to sex abuse. Mm -hmm. Earlier, we have uh, reported that during his time as Archbishop of Washington, he collected and freely distributed money to and from an account that was called, quote-unquote, the Archbishop's Special Fund. As we have previously said, he sent money from this fund to people within the Catholic Church who were supposed to investigate him. That's pretty fishy. And also, he sent money to two sitting popes. First to John Paul II, when he was the pope, and later to Benedict XVI. Now, even more scumbaggery has been revealed regarding this fund. There is a cult-like organization founded in Argentina, but also present in the US, and it's called the Institute of the Incarnate Word it was founded and led by uh, Carlos Buela, and this organization has been under investigation and sanctioned by the Vatican itself for many years for alleged sexual misconduct with seminarians. And despite them being under these sanctions, McCarrick secretly helped them to be established in the US and then sent them nearly 1 million dollars from his so-called special fund which nobody else had any insight to I, you know it's amazing what kind of and this is a cardinal you you would expect at least if you're a christian person or you would expect the cardinals to have some sense of what's right and what's wrong but uh, not McCarrick, and of course he got what was coming to him. He retired to Kansas to a Franciscan friary, but as we reported, uh, I think it was two months ago, little less than that, he has now gone missing because he just left this Franciscan friary in Kansas without leaving any forwarding address. And I just still want to think of him, as I said before, I still want to think of him as the fugitive, a 90-year-old former cardinal jumping on freight trains not to get caught by the police. And I hope that's how he's living his life nowadays. Yeah, so... uh, that's all the older poking I think we have time for this week. It was <laughs> pretty long, but, uh, you know, we took a couple of weeks off and then this happens.
0: Yeah, I just had to get it off your chest, right?
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: <laughs> well done. Thank you very much, Pontus. Mm-hmm. Now let's move on to talking about what's been going on across Europe. I think we have to start with a bit of an update on the situation with the coronavirus outbreak, because this is what it's now called. According to the WHO, there was a meeting where the new naming guidelines and everything were announced on uh, the 11th of February they announced that the official name of the disease is now coronavirus disease the short version the code for that is covid-19 but they unfortunately sometimes mix it up and it's not very consistent because they get, they, they refer to it as covid-2019 occasionally so it's an interesting <laughs> thing to mention about it mm-hmm. and the virus is called a severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2 SARS-CoV-2 is the short for that, which is...
1: um, Yeah, it doesn't roll off the tongue very
0: easily. No, no. So coronavirus disease is, I think, what we will see most often, along with covid 2019 or COVID-19. I think it's worth mentioning Swedish researchers at Umeå University. Yeah. Is it the right pronunciation? Umeå, yeah. Umeå. Yeah, Umea University in uh, in Sweden. They uh, put together a review of previous studies of the coronavirus and its transmissibility, and uh, they found that previously circulating numbers regarding the transmissibility, that is expressed as the reproduction number, mm-hmm. could be wrong. They could be underestimating the actual transmissibility. Yeah. So how, re- how infectious is it? So, how infectious is it? So the reproduction yeah. number shows that a contaminated person, a person contracted a disease, how many other people Hmm. that person transmits the virus to in a previously healthy environment? According to the World Health Organization's estimates, it's for this coronavirus, COVID-19, it's between 1.4 and 2.5. Now, according to these researchers, the Swedish researchers, it might be as high as 328 Mm -hmm. Now, this is a huge difference. A median of 2.79 they could find based on this review, which is still definitely higher than the WHO's estimate. And why it's important is because this tells you what to expect. If the reproduction number goes below 1, that means it's likely going to die out yeah because Um, you you transmit it to less than one other person right yes so Mm. it's going to slow down and eventually it'll die out Mm. but if it's that high if it's above three that's a very contagious disease it's a very quickly spreading disease so this is a bit scary and the scare continues Mm. probably everyone has heard now about the goings-on in italy Yeah, with the disease. So Italy is now definitely the hardest hit country in the whole of Europe. According to the situation update of the ECDC, the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control, issued on the 24th of February, this is when we are recording this episode, the only countries in Europe that are affected by the disease, uh, where the disease is present, is Italy, Germany, the United Kingdom, France, Spain, Russia, Belgium, Finland and Sweden. But most of these countries are having only one-digit numbers, number cases. With the exception of France, the United Kingdom and Germany, with 12, 13 and 16 cases respectively. However, Italy now has above 200 cases. Yeah, that's not good. That is only today's number and it's growing fast. Already five dead have been reported. Uh Wow. I think the reason why we got there is that uh, the Italian authorities did not act very quickly. And Italy is a great hub. A lot of people from all over the world come to Italy. It's a travel destination for many Uh across the world. Most of the people want to go to Italy at at one point of their lives. That makes it difficult to spot the disease and, and try to contain it. However, now they took very drastic measures. About a dozen towns in northern Italy have been completely locked down Yeah, with an, an overall population of about 50,000 people. Even my company. So I, I travel a lot to Italy and now we are trying to assess what it will be like in the next couple of months. So, for example, in April, I have three tours to Italy scheduled. Mm. But if the situation gets worse, they might get cancelled, all of them. Yeah. So even I here in Hungary will definitely feel it on my own skin.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You'll be affected, yeah.
0: Yeah, if not by the disease or with the disease well, itself. Af-
1: affected, but not infected. <laughs> yes, not infected by
0: but affected. <laughs> and many people across the world will be. Yeah. As uh, for example, the latest is the carnival of Venice it was supposed to last until tomorrow, I think. And uh On Sunday, Sunday afternoon, when these new measures were announced by the government, they also announced that the Carnival of Venice is... Now they just cut it.
1: Ah, that must have been the first time since, what do you know, the plague or something.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, it calls for drastic measures. I totally agree with that. If we want to stop the disease, I still have... A bit of a, a weird feeling about this. I previously mentioned on a, on a previous show the numbers about uh, influenza, mm-hmm. the, the, the flu, yeah, di- yeah. Uh, the flu, mm-hmm. flu epidemic every year, killing five hundred thousand people a year. But I do understand with with a disease that is so virulent, action needs to be taken.
1: Yeah. Ah, wow, interesting.
0: Yeah. All right. Speaking of
1: viral diseases, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> there is a new paper out about measles. It was published in the BMJ, the British mm-hmm. Medical Journal, mm-hmm. and it is about the not so well-known side effects of the disease. Mm-hmm. So we know the normal symptoms we that we associate with measles it is fever, cough, uh, conjunctivitis. I had to look that word up, and that's an eye infection. Uh, but of course, also extensive rash all over the body. However this study looked more into uh, complications and other problems following indirectly from from the measles. So, for instance, there can be appendicitis and meningitis as a result of measles. Also, as we have mentioned before, measles suppresses the immune system so that you are more vulnerable for all kinds of diseases uh, for up to more than a year and probably even longer than that Things like pneumonia, uh, seizures, encephalitis, and uh, also especially something that I hadn't really heard of before. It's called SSPE. It's subacute sclerosing panencephalitis, which is a progressive neurological disorder that uh, causes permanent nervous damage and leads to a vegetative state in the end. So that's really nasty stuff. So, again, we've said this before, but but measles is not a benign disease. It's not this simple thing that all children should go through and it will leave them stronger. It's quite the opposite. So, naturally, the authors of this study conclude their papers by, again, as we have also done here numerous times, stress the importance to have, uh, as a global coverage as possible, of two-dose measles vaccine. One, one shot is not enough. You have to have both doses. The authors also call for more education and strengthening of uh, national immunization systems. So uh, we fully agree with that. But the, the main takeaway is that measles is much more serious than you may think. And um, get your, yourself and your kids vaccinated.
0: Yep, agreed. Take that, Andrew Wakefield. Oh. yeah. There is a blog it's... called Genomics Medicine and Pseudoscience, written by a name guy, a guy named uh, Steven Salzberg, and he recently published a piece with the title "Would you trust your kids with this man?" No, I didn't <laughs> think so. <laughs> and he talks about Andrew Wakefield. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't trust him with the time of day. I mean, he's he's such a scumbag. Yeah. 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 yeah that's right. All right. So it's a serious problem, but uh, usually the way we perceive the seriousness of a problem has a lot to do with how much people around us talk about them, Mm. right? Yeah. And the coronavirus is a great example, as we saw earlier. The measles disease and the measles epidemic is a good example because there are outbreaks all over the place. But we see that happen all across the spectrum of topics. Of course, climate change is no exception. The illusion of public support, in this case against the scientific consensus, is a driving force that can generate further support, and boom, you have a feedback loop, spiraling us downwards, always further from finding real solutions. But generating the illusion is not as easy as it sounds. You need a technically brilliant, but morally and intellectually frightening tool, that is bots. These are... Internet wide, yeah. yes. Internet wide existing software applications that perform different tasks, otherwise assigned to humans. But the key is that they can do the tasks much faster and occasionally much more reliably than any human could, mm-hmm. especially where massive traffic occurs on the internet. Bots are there basically everywhere you go on the internet, and you probably wouldn't even notice their existence. According to a 2016 bot traffic report, More than half of all the web traffic is made up of bots.
1: And that's 2016?
0: 2016, exactly. That's four years ago. Yes. It's not better now. That Yeah, that was only the election year of the United States. Oh, (laughs) Oh, yeah. yeah. (laughs) But they can be very helpful in performing demanding tasks. But we mostly hear about malicious bots spam bots and the like now why i'm talking about this is that twitter and other social media platforms have been in the focus of some investigations and studies especially since the russian meddling in the u.s election have been proven Mm -hmm. in uh, recent years we've seen an ever increasing number of misinformation campaigns gaining an unsettlingly large momentum and the general suspicion is that it might be with the help of bots Mm. this was the reason why brown university in the u.s had conducted a study to determine how much of the climate crisis related content on twitter specifically was generated by bots and how much was it actual people Mm. it is a bit weird as the actual study is not yet available because the researchers have not published it yet at least not in a peer-reviewed scientific journal instead they had shown it to the guardian and oliver millman wrote an article about it that of course later got picked up by several other news outlets. There are funny ways they report the results. For example, when they talk about a new analysis finding that a quarter of all tweets about climate on an average day are produced by bots, the Guardian can reveal. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a funny way of, of putting it out. Yeah. Never mind. Let's assume that the research is real. According to the article the team of researchers led by phd candidate thomas marlowe analyzed 6.5 million tweets from between a few days prior to and a month after donald trump announced the u.s leaving the paris accord back in in june 2017 Mm. isn't it unbelievable that it's already been that long ago Mm, yeah june 2017 They found an increased bot activity applauding the president's action and spreading further misinformation about the science of climate change, amplifying denialist messages. On average, they found that within this period, 25% of all tweets about climate change came from bots. Mm. But proportionately higher was their support for Trump and the denialist approach, 38% of them tweeting about fake science and 28% talking about Exxon, the petroleum company. Meanwhile, in support of action on the climate crisis, only 5% of all the tweets came from bots. So we we definitely see there is an unbalance here with the action of bots. For the analysis, they used a tool called Botometer, uh, developed by indiana university that exists for the specific purpose of assessing the probability of a user being a bot rather than an actual person on the day of the announcement and that they what they try to look for are patterns in writing stuff up and spreading patterns and and all that and on the day of the announcement bot activity dropped in proportion probably due to to real human users tuning in and jumping on the bandwagon and this drop in proportion was despite the actual increase in the overall number of tweets by bots from a few hundred a day to more than 25,000 per day around the announcement. Wow. What does this all mean? Well, definitely has an effect on all of us. So this is why, even though it, it happened in the US, this, this, this whole thing, it has relevance to all of us across the globe because of climate change affecting all of us. This is a disturbing finding, though. As bots are not real humans, they cannot be argued with or convinced by evidence. Their sole purpose is generating traffic and creating the illusion that there is a massive support against the science. That may well be the case anyway, but unfortunately this makes those who would otherwise stay silent, because they think they belong to the minority with their anti-science views, more likely to let their voices heard. Potentially resulting in decision makers to listen to them and making the wrong decisions. And that is tragical. That doesn't do much more but further hinder progress in the matter, and that is not what we need. So we need to be on the lookout for Twitter bots and other bots as well. Who knows who operates those? But it's yeah. it's it's terrible that they exist.
1: Yeah. So so here's a wild idea. Yeah. Why don't we create a thousand or thousands of Twitter bots ourselves that spread only the real
0: information? That's that's an interesting concept. <laughs> and I think this is one of those examples when we just shoot ourselves in the foot by playing by the rules. <laughs> playing by the rules and adhering to our own very high standards. Yeah. So like yeah, we're not cheating. Yeah. I can tell you all about it firsthand. This is how I didn't get a fucking degree because I refused to cheat mm-hmm. at all while others were just marching ne- next yeah. to me and, and just leaving me behind. And I, every day of my life, I experienced that. Mm. But this is how we can look into the mirror and yeah. don't want to spit on it. <laughs> all right. Okay. So say
1: what you will about Twitter bots or not fake news on fake ideas are not harmless as you've just we've just talked about but in another context on 19th of february i'm sure people are aware that in hanau in germany a 40 year old far right extremist went on an attack and killing spree killing nine people of foreign nationality or foreign background or foreign nationality And he wounded another uh, five people. Later, he also killed his own mother before shooting himself at home. He left behind him a 24-page long written rant where he called for the complete extermination of all people from uh, most countries in the Middle East, as well as Bangladesh, India. India? That's a lot of people to exterminate. Yeah. Yeah. And then several countries in in Southeast Asia and also the Philippines. He left videos saying that America was under the control of quote-unquote invisible secret societies. And he also believed that he had been under surveillance by the government since he was a child. And that was the reason that he never had been able to, to have a proper relationship with a woman. So uh, obviously, tragically delusional, crazy talk from this guy, right? Yeah. So then the question comes up, whether this is a person with serious mental issues, and if that's the reason that he did what he did, or is it that there are ideas out there that made him do this? And of course... It's not as clean as all that, one side or the other. And I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a policeman even, and I I wouldn't pretend to know what was going on in his person's mind. But clearly, we should conclude that some ideas are more dangerous than others. Christine Lambrecht, who is the German uh, justice minister, said about this tragedy that, quote, "...such crime doesn't come out of nowhere," end quote. And I sort of agree with that, but for people who have problems, uh, mental problems or other kinds of problems, and for some reason feel that they need something or someone to blame for perceived injustices and for personal shortcomings or whatever it is, that it's very easy to go to conspiracy theories. Um, it is, yeah. Things about you know secret organisations controlling the world just feeds into the paranoia that can fuel these kinds of of tragedies and very often one conspiracy theory feeds into another so if you believe that the moon landing was a hoax or if you believe that earth is really flat but nasa is lying about it for some reason it can sound like a harmless thing but if you believe in one of them it's so easy to go to the other and to the other and to the more dangerous ones. Uh, And this is, I think, why we have to continue to fight for rational thinking in all of society. And we have to fight even the most ridiculous conspiracy theories because it's all part of a big web. If you believe that NASA can control... Whatever all scientists say about climate change, for instance, then it's so much easier to go to the next step and say, well, really, there's a secret society that uh, trying to hide all truth from us and we have to murder people. And, and, you know, it it is a and I know I'm I'm painting a slippery slope here, but I also know that we have seen that happen several times. So... um, (laughs)
0: Yeah, it's difficult sometimes to distinguish between a slippery slope argument as a fallacy Mm. and uh, where do you draw the line because there are cascades of events happening and you you can see it in the history of humankind Mm. that occasionally there are a line of events that can be traced back and sometimes you have the opportunity to stop something from happening If you step in at the right moment and intervene at the right moment. And this is why governments do have to be very careful and appreciate and understand their own responsibilities Mm. in this, I think. Yeah. Talking about which... (laughs) (laughs) uh let me tell you something about my government's approach um mm-hmm. not my government i don't like to call them my government it's my country's government so let me start with uh saying that a couple of days ago we we, we came across an advertisement on facebook mm-hmm. in hungarian it was of course it was a call for artworks to be submitted to a design competition in celebration and rediscovery of god's creation oh really It was all brought about by a foundation called Good News. It's responsible for publishing the Hungarian edition of the Creation magazine, (laughs) as well as educating, or rather indoctrinating, I would say, young and older people into appreciating the creation of God and how evolution cannot be real. The above-mentioned call aims at children and adults alike. They await works of art in three different categories based on age ranges. People between 7 and 11, 12 to 16, and 17 to 99 years of age, of course, are to submit any creation, creation, pun intended, <laughs> uh, circling around a couple of questions. For, for some reason, some of these questions sound like a parody to me. But stay tuned for why they're not. So the questions. How do you picture the sequence of actions over the days of creation? What do you think the world could have been before and after creation? What was it like for animals to live together in harmony? <laughs> what could the first pair of dinosaurs look like in the Garden of Eden? Uh. What do you think, you know, dinosaurs? i pic- <laughs> <I'm> picturing
1: <laughs> yeah? two big brontosaurus just mashing yeah, just everything down. They just <laughs> made raking a havoc all over Oop. Eden. So, oops, was that the tree with the apples? I'm sorry, somebody stepped on it.
0: I think, I think this is this is the origin of the expression "Oopsie daisies." It's <laughs> <laughs> yes so there are two more questions what do you think dinosaurs thought of the Ark of Noah while it was being built (laughs) I'm I'm guessing like so they they are expecting pictures like with dinosaurs wondering what's going on and imagine them how disappointed they could be when they couldn't fit on the 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 Ark okay oh boy And the last question is, what could the relationship between dinosaurs and humans be like? Well, we've seen
1: Jurassic Park, so so we know know Okay, Yeah, uh,
0: dinosaurs and people can live together. (laughs) So the deadline, uh, I'm not advertising this, but uh, (laughs) there is a deadline to this uh, competition. It's March 16th. The first prize is 50 euros. The second around 30. The third is around 15. That is in the children's categories. And adults can expect to win 80, 50, and 30 euros, respectively. And there will be an award ceremony taking place at the Creation Conference that will be happening in April. And there will be a poll among their Facebook audiences as well, to name a popular winner as well. But the most troubling part I haven't even mentioned yet. Mm. On the poster of the call for the competition a logo appeared that suggested the involvement of the Hungarian Ministry of Human Capacities as one of the sponsors. Mm -hmm. Well, that is a ministry under which healthcare, education, and all the rest is being done. So that is like a mega-giga ministry, the Ministry of Human Capacities. And they appeared as one of the sponsors. That raised a couple of eyebrows. Among our ranks at the Hungarian Skeptic Society, I have to say. Yeah, Uh, (laughs) Understandably. Unfortunately, we were not fast enough to act, but, but someone did request information on the ministry's involvement, and they got published on some of the news outlets because they replied. So it turns out they did not give any government money specifically to this competition. Yeah, not to that specifically. However, in December 2019, they did give... 40,000 euros to the Good News Foundation and their publisher called Fire Media in support of publishing of the Hungarian edition of Creation Magazine. So basically they did fund them, but not that specifically. But according to uh, Good News Foundation, this is part of the Creation Magazine launching thing. So it is coming out soon, and it is intended to be circulating at around 10,000 prints. So the only thing they could say is that they, they shouldn't have indicated the name of the ministry on, on the poster of the call, but they will only investigate the whole thing when the support period is over. So I'm guessing it's not going to happen. Ah, wow. Well, then the damage is done. Hmm. Yes, yeah. And I'm afraid we are just witnessing yet another ridiculous action performed by Viktor Orban's government to support creationism and bigotry. Not good. Oh. Not wow. good at all. But I have to add that a counter call have been announced by one of the news outlets making a parody of this whole thing. Ah. But there are no prizes to win. So they they even, even announced in a call that you will get fuck all, basically. <laughs> but we just want to make fun of this whole yeah. r- ridiculous competition. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so speaking of funding things, this is uh, better news than yours, Andras, I'm I'm happy to say. There are Good. good examples of funding things as well. One is the Giving Pledge, which was initiated by Bill Gates and Warren Buffett in 2010. And it was a call to action for the super rich billionaires around the world to donate half of their wealth to charities and and good causes and according to wikipedia over 200 people have signed on to that and they've pledged a total of 500 billion dollars although of course there's no audit to say how much was actually donated this is just counting what people said that they will donate But there's one guy who has been criticized for not joining the the Giving Pledge, and that is Jeff Bezos. Mm -hmm. Of Amazon, right? Yes, the founder and CEO of Amazon. He's generally considered the richest man in the world. And uh, to my knowledge, he has still not uh, signed on to the Giving Pledge, but he's done something else. He has announced, and he did that on the 17th of February, that he would start a fund of $10 billion. That $10 billion, that's quite a lot of money to help fight climate change. He says the money will be used to finance work by scientists, activists, and other groups. So that's very good of him. I I think if I had that (laughs) kind of money, I think that's good use uh, of those. But I, I do wonder one thing, though, what he was thinking when he was naming his new fund. It has a very unfortunate name, quote-unquote, the Bezos Earth Fund. (laughs) So that's just one measly little apostrophe away from telling us that the Earth belongs to Bezos. Yeah. (laughs) But I guess... um, given the amount of money he has, maybe he feels that that's the situation. So, but uh, the name aside, uh, if he goes through with this, and we will know more in in June or this summer, he will be announcing exactly what he's going to do with his fund, etc. That's fine. But maybe he should consider changing the name of the fund. (laughs) This is not Bezos Earth we are living on.
0: Yeah. To be honest, I don't think it's beyond him to... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to to want that but uh, yeah it's <laughs> <laughs> okay so just one more thing to quickly finish the news round and that is um, a, a great initiative it's by the hungarian branch of the scandinavian telecom company Telenor. Mm-hmm. And uh, they just launched a great tool to tackle the issue of uh, young people finding it hard to cope with uh, online presence, their online presence and uh, online media. Mm-hmm. It's called HyperSchool. Hyper is basically the product name of the line of their product. Uh, the HyperNet is what it's called, which is uh, basically a, a mobile network product. So it's called the Conscious Net, and it's in a quiz format. Mm-hmm. They try to teach children about cybersecurity and uh, how you can can identify phishing, how you want to consume news, and how to what are the main characteristics of fake news items and all that. So it's a great initiative. I think it's a good thing that uh, it's provided by cell provider. Because with the cell phones now being in everyone's hands, it is becoming more and more important that we get these reference points in your online presence so that that you find your way around them and you find the right roads. So yeah, Yeah. well done, Telenor. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, that was all the news items we wanted to cover. And let's move on to something that we call really right or really wrong. So which one is it this week, Pontus? It is a really right for what. Oh, good.
1: So the Giordano Bruno Foundation or mm-hmm. Giordano Bruno Stiftung is a non-profit foundation that promotes quote evolutionary humanism end quote. We've mentioned them occasionally before. Mm-hmm. It's an organization very critical of religion, and they are very supportive of people trying to leave religions or having left religions, but they're also promoting rational thinking and similar things that we hear on the ESP sympathize with, of course. Yeah, They are also now behind an art competition every second year, and I believe the first one was in 2018. It is called DH exclamation point, which stands for Düsseldorfer Aufklärungdienst <laughs> or something <laughs> like that. that. Aufklärungsdienst. Yeah, I believe it can be translated into something along the lines of Düsseldorf Enlightenment work. For this year's competition, which has just been announced, they have called in an old friend and hero of ours, none other than the marvelous Natalie Grams, former homeopath-turned-skeptic-activist, and uh, she's a founder of the homeopathy information network together with the the GVUP, which are the German skeptics in line with uh, Nathalie Grams work the theme for this year's competition will be quote does not have an effect beyond the placebo end quote nice. so that, that's a quite <laughs> open and interesting theme and yeah. and the idea is and it's open for all artists in germany Uh, The idea is to create works of art uh, on the theme and then in connection with a public exhibition put on by the Public Art Museum of the city of Düsseldorf. There will be an exhibition there and the best works that has been entered will win prizes. And uh, the deadline for entering is the 8th of June and the opening of the exhibition will be on the 18th of July. And the awards themselves will be presented on 26th of July and there will be four prizes a first a second and a third award which will be awarded by a jury price money is uh, 3,000 euro 2,000 euro oh, wow. and 1,000 euro respectively plus there will also be a special people's award of a thousand euro last time which was as I said in 2018 hundred and fifty artists participated and of course they're hoping to beat that this year and as a son of a painter an artist (laughs) I think this is lovely I think it's a fantastic idea to put the light on rational thinking using the creativity of artists as they write on their official homepage which I have tried to google translate and massaged a little bit it says quote we think that art, alongside science and philosophy, is an essential facet of human creativity that provides meaning and can inspire and enlighten on a poetic level, end quote. Nice. Ah, that's, I think that's beautiful. I think yeah. we don't talk too much about art uh, within the skeptical movement, but I think we may have missed something. I think that may be a channel to reach the public that we may have not explored too much.
0: Yeah, do you remember Matt at... Um, mm-hmm. Matt Kemp. At uh, Matt Kemp at um, yes. QED? Yeah. Wow, that, now that is a good example of how the two can live perfectly Very together true. and can complement each other. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah. But we mostly link it to performing arts, I think. that's mm-hmm. That could mm-hmm. be one of the reasons.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we, we should mention also that Matt Kemp did a lot of drawings, as you say, And we took one part of the drawing he did and we converted it into the logo that we're now using for the ESP. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. It's his logo, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And another good example is that the book that we promoted last week with the interview with John Cook, uh, Cranky Uncle versus Climate Change, has been drawn by him uh, as a comic book and it's amazing stuff. Yeah. So I can't wait for everyone to be able to get their hands yeah. on it because it's it's amazing. Yeah. So
1: yeah, art is absolutely something we should explore and maybe we do it more than I was aware of, but uh, I I think this is very good. So for creating the DA exclamation point art award and uh, using art as a vehicle to promote rational thinking, the Giordano Bruno Foundation Natalie Grams and the Düsseldorf Public Art Museum, they all get today's prize for being really
0: right. Nice. Thank you very, very much. Very good. <laughs> oh, I wanted to mention that uh, ever since you told me that you had uh, been in uh, Capri... Yeah. Uh, and working it was it with your father right yeah well i wasn't uh, working he worked, he, no i didn't yeah, want, yeah but I, he was he was working there with the, uh with the foundation yeah foundation yeah and uh i helped building. him for
1: a week that's <laughs> that's what i did yeah
0: yeah but still every time i go there since you've mentioned that mm-hmm. it makes me smile just yeah. when i when i see the building yeah <laughs> great yeah very good all right i think this was all that we could fit in this this show it will probably be a bit longer than usual <laughs> but uh, this is what happens when we miss a week uh, we we cannot true. Very true. and we 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 have so many things that we want to share so I before we go, I'd like to hit ourselves with a quote, <laughs> just hit ourselves on the head with a quote. Mm-hmm. it's like um i I like this quote. Mm-hmm. it's from uh, Werner Karl Heisenberg. Mm-hmm. He was a German physicist, a uh, Nobel laureate and one of the founders of uh, quantum mechanics mm. actually uh, you know the I've the, heard of it yes I the don't Hei- understand Heisenberg it. Heisenberg uncertainty principle has been uh, named after him yeah I'm not sure about that but it joke. was named after him yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. bad joke sorry okay bad one uh, that i didn't get all right so the quote goes. If nature leads us to mathematical forms of great simplicity and beauty, by forms I am referring to coherent systems of hypotheses, axioms, etc., to forms that no one has previously encountered, we cannot help thinking that they are true, that they reveal a genuine feature of nature. Yes. Mathematical forms of great simplicity and beauty. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. So I like it very much when uh, people refer to the universe being put together in the language or, or based on the language of mathematics, yeah. that it's universal somehow. And we now, all know like, what the answer is. It's 42. It is 42 indeed. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Life, the universe and everything. Mm. All right. This has been all. Thank you very much, Pontus, for joining me today. Thank you, Anders. Hope Jelana can come back for next week. Thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in please keep doing so and spread the word. But until next week, goodbye. Bye-bye. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Shraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can be believe. <laughs>
1: Feeling that, you know, if this show ever goes dead and we don't do this, I will still sit here clapping in my basement every week just for... as an old <laughs> habit. All right. Fill in the nomination fee. Uh, sorry. <laughs> uh, there, there will there is, be no, fee. There's, there no fee.
0: There's no fee. There's no fee. Seance. Seance. He also, do, he also uh, does uh, seances uh, in uh, which... Uh, <laughs> Oh, you're... Yes. (laughs) Sorry, I was... Pokey, pokey, (laughs) pokey time. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Pokey time.